morning. My name is Blythe, if I haven't met you yet, and I'm just sort of scanning the room and taking you all in. I find it's nicer to talk to people that I know instead of just a sea of faces I'm not actually absorbing. So, <laughs> um, It's really good to be here with you this morning, and uh, yeah, it's good to be together. If you're new or returning, our church is journeying through the book of Acts this year. It's a it's an exciting book. It's a challenging book, and uh, at times I find it a bit bewildering, if I'm honest. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if maybe the wide-eyed feeling that Acts gives me is good, because it reminds me that God often acts in ways that exceed the safe little box that I like to put him in. It's a reminder that God's story is bigger than my own experience, and I don't know about you, but I often need this reminder. It comes as a grace that shocks me out of my own self. So far, Acts strikes me as a story of God's people encountering God, often amid struggle and persecution and suffering. And in this encounter, it's a story of God's people experiencing that transformation, both individually and communally, that comes from this encounter. But more than a story of us encountering God, I think it's also a story of God bending low to encounter his people, to give himself to his people, to gift his spirit, and in doing so, uh, to make God's own self present in generous and sustaining ways. And through this, the small, early, persecuted church grows. Because it seems as if it's God's will to share God's self with increasingly more people widening in a trajectory of inclusion, starting from small Jewish origins and then moving outwards to all. In equipping the early church with his spirit then, God is also gifting them with presence, and along with this presence, with an invitation to extend to others to encounter this presence too. It could be odd to speak of God's presence, and I admit that an experience of God's presence does seem more common sometimes to certain personality types. I, for example, feel most things in life deeply, whether it's art or creation or a good meal or a good fight, I usually have a big emotional response to these things, but others don't. If you struggle to feel God, I wonder if there are other ways to think of God's presence beyond just our emotional feelings. One of the Greek words for spirit is pneuma or pneumatos, which means wind or breath, as well as spirit and inner life. I like how Barbara Brown Taylor articulates the newly gifted spirit's arrival. I'm paraphrasing and condensing her a little bit here because it was a very long quote, but the idea is all hers. She says that when Christ let go of his last breath, willingly, we believe, for love of us, he breathed out the Holy Spirit. And the early church breathed that last breath in deeply. And then, of course, they breathed it out again, giving God back to the world. And that breath, that rhythm, sustained them. That image is such a good picture of, I think, what, I think that image is such a good picture of what's happening in Acts, that constant flow between the church and God, that total reliance on him, the giver of all breath. And maybe it's a good picture of what happens in our own lives, too, our own spiritual lives. 
that analogy of the church breathing in Christ's last breath is something that I can cling to in Acts. It helps me find myself in the story of the early church because it becomes my origin story. It's the story of our, the church's, first breath. Barbara Brown Taylor again, and this time it's all her own words. She writes, if you've studied earth science, then you know that our gorgeous blue-green planet is wrapped in a protective veil that we call the atmosphere, which separates the air we breathe from the cold vacuum of outer space. Beneath this veil is all the air that ever was. No cosmic planet cleaning company comes along every hundred years or so to suck out all the old air and pump in some new. The same ancient air just keeps recirculating, which means that every time any of us breathes, we breathe stardust left over from the creation of the Earth. We breathe brontosaurus breath and pterodactyl breath. We breathe air that has circulated through the rainforests of Kenya and air that has turned yellow with sulfur over Mexico City. We breathe the same air that Plato breathed and Mozart and Michelangelo, not to mention Hitler. Okay. Neither Barbara Brown-Taylor nor I are earth scientists. Um, she's a theologian. I don't know, I read things. So there is some grace required if this is an artful stretch of facts. But at the same time, both Barbara and I are good researchers. So I did fact check this on science.howstuffworks.com. <laughs> that is a real website. <laughs> and it sounds legit. <laughs> But regardless, the more important idea here is the one at work behind the science, what it signifies for us as God-breathed people. On a deeper level, this idea illustrates another reality, that the spirit in us is the same spirit who came like fire and wind in Acts. This spirit is unchanging, having always dwelled in the creator's world and people. So that's another point of connection that roots me in the story of Acts, this idea that my core self, the spirit in me, shares some spiritual DNA with the early apostles' core selves. Today we're finishing a section of Acts that really began a few weeks ago in Acts 3, verse 1. I think it was two weeks back Scott told us the beginning of this story. Peter and John are going to temple when they meet a man who's begging at the temple gate. He's experienced some sort of physical disability his whole life, and they sense the Spirit's tug to look this man in the eye and to offer healing. The crowds and this man are astonished, and so Peter addresses them. He shares the good news of Christ, in whose name this man was healed. And then, as Nelson shared last week, Peter and John are arrested. Right there, as they're speaking to the astonished crowds, they're thrown in jail overnight, they're questioned, they're threatened, and then released. And that's where we pick up the story today. This long story is about to reach its peak. Before we dive into the text, um, I'd just like to uh, pause and pray and invite God to open up his word to us. God, thank you that you are with us, that you are with me, and that you are speaking to us in this, uh, in this story, in your scripture ask that we would have the grace to see you at work in what you have to say to us today. Okay, so we're going to read from Acts 4. There should be a page number. Yeah, page 761. 
starting in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot going on in this passage. Uh, Peter and John have just spent a night in prison. They were seized by the same government that just six weeks before killed Jesus, their teacher and Lord and dear friend. I wonder what they thought and felt as they were sitting in prison and on their release. I imagine they're still grieving. Six weeks isn't a very long time to get over the physical absence of someone you love, someone you saw every day, someone you shared your life with. And even amidst deep belief and assurance in God's hand on their lives, their personal grief might feel too weighty, especially amidst all this persecution. Maybe they were remembering Jesus' words about persecution. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Maybe there's a strange comfort in these words for them. Or maybe they're remembering another of Christ's teachings. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Maybe that soothes their grief. Maybe it reminds them of Christ's presence through his spirit with them in that cell. But whatever they're feeling, they're released. And they go back and together uh, with the other believers, they pray. And I think the first words of their prayers are quite revealing. Sovereign Lord, they say. The Greek word for Lord here is quite unique from the one usually used in the New Testament. They address God specifically as despota, uh, which comes from the root despotes, which means absolute ruler. Our English Bibles translate that to sovereign lord. 
So in addressing God this way, they're emphasizing, they're articulating that even in persecution, God holds all things. Maybe it's a prayer of reorientation. Maybe they're using a name for God uh, that they hope will shape their imaginations further to see a counterintuitive truth, that this is God's world, and that though there is struggle, he sustains it. They continue to pray, acknowledging God as creator. You made all this and everything in it. And beneath those words, as we will see, a belief is present that in making it, God sustains it, that God has not abandoned his creation. After acknowledging God's presence in the created world, the praying believers acknowledge God's presence in their scriptures. They quote Psalm 2, saying, Why do the rulers of the earth band together against God? Here, they're cementing their own experience of persecution within the story of Israel. The psalm that these believers quote was important in Israel's history. Israel would recite this psalm any time they installed a new king. Israel was a smaller nation, often surrounded by some real superpowers with super militaries. So like the early believers, they understood worldly persecution and oppression. This psalm, and especially the quoted portion in our text today, clearly articulates that persecution. So the early church is in good company when they recite Psalm 2. But of course, the praying believers here in Acts only quote the first two verses. What they don't quote is the rest of the psalm, which ultimately points to God's saving sovereignty amidst war and chaos and struggle. Psalm 2 actually ends with a bit of hope for the persecuted Israel, saying, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. For him is God's anointed, who the early church saw as Christ. The psalm promises refuge, then, for a fearful people, refuge that God, comes from God's saving rule, even though the world rages against them. This psalm and its context would have been super familiar to Peter and John. And while ancient Israel would read this psalm and take hope in God's earthly appointed king over them as that king is being installed, the early church reinterprets it and sees that the psalmist is actually pointing to ultimate hope in Christ, the heavenly king, the good one who gives refuge to all who turn his way. So while they only quote one part of the psalm, they probably had the other part rattling around in their collective memory. In praying Psalm 2, the early church remembers God's promise to be with them, to be their refuge, even and perhaps especially when the logic of the world threatens this allegiance or when it shouts otherwise. So far, the believer's prayer has drawn attention to God's sovereignty, to his presence in creation, and to his presence in scripture. And finally, their prayer draws attention to God's presence in their own all-too-recent history, too. They connect this psalm to their own context with ease, remembering that Christ, too, experienced opposition at the hands of Herod and Pilate and the councils and rulers who collectively orchestrated his death. But, as they say in verse 28, God's power was infused even in this. God, your absolute rule never weakened, they say, even as the one we love was dying. This reminds me that God's kingdom defies logic that real power and the lowest death can coexist. 
that God willingly chose to enter the suffering of our world, to take on death, and in doing so, took our suffering upon his self. Not that it would disappear or find a cure, but that it would find its direction, and that somehow, through this, we might be made more whole. That is the sovereign Lord that these believers address, one who knows their struggle intimately, one who embodied it, and one who inhabits ours. I can't understand the persecution that these early believers would have experienced, and if you're like me and grew up in Canada, you probably can't either. There are definitely times when it's socially awkward to be a Christian in Canada, or at least in many of my social circles. And some relationships might be very painful um, if we feel our faith or ourselves are misunderstood. I don't want to discredit that or downplay it. But I imagine few of us have been jailed for our faith. And yet, a lot of the global church lives this very regularly. And as Nelson mentioned last week, they often don't pray for that persecution to end, quite possibly because they've tasted the generous, strengthening presence of Jesus in their lives amidst this. Well, most of us don't know persecution or don't understand political persecution in this way, that the global church understands it. I know you understand struggle and suffering. Some of you might feel like you're in a season of struggle and suffering right now. The believer's prayer articulates a belief that God is with us and he is, he is in our midst, amidst, or while our suffering and our struggle is taking place. And that he wants to be present to us in this suffering and that he understands our need amidst struggle. It seems to me that often, whether it's in Exodus or Acts or Vancouver, that the Spirit draws near in the wilderness and the darkness and the loneliness of our lives. That God is near in ways we never could have expected and in ways we might not even be able to realize. That he's intimately drawing close to us, holding all things, even when all things seem so hard or inexplicable. To me, that sounds like the coexistence of presence in what feels like absence a feast in the wilderness, a generous presence when life feels dark. Not a cure, to be clear, but a drawing us closer. And what if, by offering his presence, God is also inviting us into transformation? Maybe a firsthand knowledge of God's presence amid suffering is why the believers in Acts 4 don't ask for God to end their persecution. Did you notice that? Instead, they pray, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They don't ask for an end to persecution, but they do ask for God's ear, for his hand, for his presence to inflate their collective lungs and to flow out to others. They ask for it to strengthen them so that others might know the gift of his presence too. What if that was how we approached life's trials? To be very clear, 
I obviously don't think there's anything wrong with asking God to end our suffering, and I don't know the shape of your own suffering. Scripture is full of examples of people asking to stop their pain. Lament is good, and there is a place for it always. But often, struggle persists. It can last years. It can last a lifetime. And when it does, like it did for the early church, we might need this attitude, one that's more interested in God with us than in anything else. So the believers ask for an increased awareness of God's empowering presence, which they know doesn't cure all suffering, but perhaps does heal, or rather makes things new, makes us more whole. They ask him to go before them in their life and work. And God responds quite tangibly right there. In response, God's presence shakes them. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Mics and mic stands are not working in my favor today. <laughs> so, Acts 4, 31. I want you to just imagine for a second with me. Imagine your awareness of the Spirit in you growing so strongly, like huge lungs inflating with new air. Maybe there was a physical shaking, an earthquake, or maybe Luke is just using the best available language to articulate the inarticulable. It's very difficult to describe the presence of God. Maybe you've tried, words fail, we run up against an edge in language. And maybe there was a physical earthquake, but even so, it's still an outward expression of a more important, invisible, unseen reality. Earthquakes are used throughout scripture to signify God's presence, to pave the way for his kingdom to break in. It's one of the material signs used by many prophets. Fire and wind, too. Okay, so we have three signs. <laughs> Earthquakes, wind, and fire. Thank you for indulging me here on this very much dad joke. <laughs> but also notice my excellent graphic design skills. <laughs> Anyways, these three signs. Um, remember... We've already encountered wind and fire at Pentecost in Acts 2. So now, here, we have this old familiar sign appearing. The whole place shook. The Jewish believers in the room would have been making connections. They would know that this is a sign of God revealing himself to us. Confirmation of the Spirit recently given in new and personal ways. And Jewish readers of this text would see that Luke wants to convey in his account that the God who's been present throughout Israel's history, throughout Old Testament scriptures, continues to be with them, carving a path as that history widens forward. To be clear, this isn't a second Pentecost. The Spirit was given once and for all, but it is an affirmation, a renewed awareness freely given to a persecuted people a people longing for God's hand in life's difficult terrain. If we go back to the analogy of breath, the Spirit is always with us, just like we're always breathing. We don't often notice our breathing. However, there are definitely times when I feel more aware of my breath, 
when I'm more aware of it sustaining me and of my desperate need for it. When I go for a long winter's run, for example, or when I go to the mountains and take in a big breath and let the cold, clean air fill my lungs. I think that's a helpful analogy for what's happening here. Something that's always there is manifesting in a very powerful way. If you find yourself skeptical about this whole thing, what's happening in this text, I think that's totally fair. I want to acknowledge that it can be very painful and frustrating when life's hard or faith's dry and it feels impossible to sense God in our lives. When I feel like that, um, I really like how one commentator puts it. John Stott addresses our sort of 21st century bent towards skepticism about God's active involvement in our lives. When he says, if we have hesitations about claims around signs and wonder today, we must make sure we haven't confined both God and ourselves in the prison of Western rationalistic unbelief. Obviously, modern reason is very good and helpful for many, many things. But sometimes it cultivates the opposite of wonder. And I think that's exactly what this text is inviting us to do today, to wonder, to marvel, to feel small. Again, I like how Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. Asking for an experience of the Holy Spirit is only half the equation, however. The other half is recognizing when it comes. Okay, it sounds like this experience in Acts was probably pretty easy to recognize. But we don't usually get earthquakes, or at least I don't. And yet, I do experience lots of ordinary occurrences that I tend to write off as natural phenomena or everyday humdrum, but in which I think the spirit dwells. Maybe, I don't know, it's long fingers of light on your kitchen wall, or a quiet morning, a room full of friends, a neighborhood group, a poem. I'm sure you have your own list of things that you could sub in here too. Maybe your grandchild, a mountain, the sunrise, the love of your partner. Maybe these are places where God is manifesting himself to you. Tiny little earthquakes. I want us to imagine ourselves in the room with Peter and John, though, to imagine feeling this, this shaking, whether physical or figurative. Imagine what it would have been like to sense God's presence in this way. As one commentator puts it, how would we act? What would we say? What would we do? Perhaps an act of love which we've resisted doing or a forgiveness which we need to express. Or maybe we just respond with a simple act of being, of remembering that we are loved and that God is with us and loves this world. After tasting God's presence, the believers were, as Luke writes, moved to speak the word of God boldly. In experiencing the presence of the Spirit, they were newly motivated in love and courage. They were transformed. And I love what comes next, this beautiful chunk of text. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I did that very carefully. Some people sold their property. 
Others kept it but acted like what's mine is yours. These were people who, as Wendell Berry says, practice resurrection. Having breathed in the kingdom, they breathed it out into their lives, into their community. Since a majority of these early believers are Jewish Christians, it's likely that they had a deep knowledge of Deuteronomy 15.4, which says there should be no poor among you. And in New Testament times, this verse was reinterpreted or sort of widened and expanded to contain a reference to the ideal final times as well, to new heaven and new earth, where all will be level and all needs will dissolve. The early Christians saw themselves as people living into the reality of kingdom come here and now, a reality in which they already existed, and in which we exist, while, of course, simultaneously existing here. I want to stress that the early church's radical concern for each other was voluntary. I think that's important. This wasn't legislated requirement, but rather done completely willingly, even spontaneously. And I think that actually says something about the kind of encounter that these people had with God. So wild, it changed them, shook themselves out of themselves, and transformed them to turn towards each other. I love that we have these two sections of text right next to each other in Acts 4, because it highlights the connection between God's generous presence descending like an earthquake and our own transformed hearts and hands. I love that, oh, no, sorry, that's not what I wanted to say. They've had a transformative spiritual encounter, and it's manifesting in a material, social way. I think that's really neat, and I think that we risk contemporary Gnosticism, this separation of sort of spirit and body, which has a history of sort of devaluing the material world, if we, too, aren't changed in some small way after encountering the spirit. I worry we cheapen the Spirit's work and our createdness if we only let an encounter with God impact our heads and our minds, maybe our so-called spiritual lives, but not our bodies, not our relationships, not our social lives. We're holistic creatures, and God knows this, so I think an encounter with his Spirit is going to shape his church holistically in heart and mind and unity and action and it looks so beautiful. It's easy to react to these verses, mainly in one of two extremes. One extreme might uh, look like feeling defensive or trying to justify the believer's uh, radical sharing in a way that protects us from ever having to live this way. And if that's you, I I would encourage you to examine those feelings and just ask about their root cause. Another way to respond to these texts, or this text is often judgment, um, either judgment of myself or judgment of others, to feel shame. I'm not doing enough. That person isn't doing enough. They have way too much money, way too many possessions. They're probably not a Christian. And uh, if that's you, definitely notice those thoughts too, those judgments, especially if directed towards others. Because I don't think judgment is any better than defensiveness or justification and it's the worst motivator for real change. But what if there's another invitation in this text? What if there's an invitation to see that maybe the believers were so enamored with God, so trusting of his good sovereignty amid struggle, that they couldn't not live this way? 
And what if that tells us something about God's generous presence, his longing for us to know that we are loved and that he is good and that he is sovereign and that he longs for that knowledge to shape us? What if the point isn't to respond to these texts by guilting ourselves into doing more, but to see God contagiously at work in them? to long for God's presence so clearly shown here and to know that life can spring out of an encounter with that presence. To see that God's generous spirit is with us and to try and adopt a posture that's open to his presence, open to his spirit. What if these scenes, scenes of persecution and wild presence and now this, show us how God is in the business of making his people more whole? I want to jump back a few verses to Acts 4.31. The place where they were meeting was shaken, and all were filled with the Holy Spirit. An earthquake happens in another place in Acts, in Acts chapter 16, which I imagine we'll get to probably in the spring during this sermon series. So sorry to whoever is preaching then. I have stolen some of your sermon. In this scene... Um, which, yeah, there should be a page number for that scene too. Yeah, you're welcome to go there if you want to, but I'll tell us a little bit about what happens here. In this scene, Paul and Silas are in prison, and an earthquake, again, remember, one of the three signs, three most common signs for God's presence, opens the prison doors. Luke describes it. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. Here, the shaking leads to freedom. I don't know if Luke did this on purpose, or if God did this on purpose, but in my mind, these scenes are connected, Acts 4 and Acts 16. In Acts 16, the earthquake opens a prison door, but if you know the rest of the story, in Acts 16, Paul and Silas don't just make a run for it. In their newly found freedom, made possible by God's presence, they pause and turn towards a suffering person. And they stay and they comfort a struggling prison guard. And God's presence extends towards another to the prison guard. And in today's text, in Acts 4, God's presence descends like an earthquake, and it opens the doors of the believer's hearts, freeing them from the self and moving them to the other in their community. Both scenes show a movement towards freedom initiated by God, but both times the freedom offered looks nothing like the world's definition of freedom. Instead, perhaps it's the freedom we were created for. It's an invitation into kingdom come. I need this. I'm so attached to my things, to my possessions, and I so often live in fear. Fear about enough, fear of scarcity, fear of being taken advantage of financially or being duped, fear about savings and rent increases and housing security, and I know that these are real fears that many of you share as well. Recently, um, I'm a bit ashamed to confess this, uh, I had a teeth cleaning appointment at the dentist. That's obviously not the thing I'm ashamed to confess. Um, <laughs> I, 
I had a period in my life where I didn't visit the dentist for like seven or eight years. And when I finally returned, I had 11 cavities. <laughs> like they had to quadrant off my mouth with like a plan of attack to get them all. Anyways, so I'm trying to visit the dentist more regularly now. But I don't have much in the way of dental benefits. I'm sure that many of you can relate to this. And so when I arrived for my appointment and they told me how much the appointment would cost for a teeth cleaning, I panicked. And this is the thing I'm kind of ashamed for, or ashamed of. I had enough in my bank account to pay for the teeth cleaning, but I just felt so afraid of spending that money. And I felt my breath get short and my jaw get tight. And I explained that I didn't know I'd have to pay. And I think there was a misunderstanding on the phone. And is there any way that we can cancel? And the receptionist was gracious and she let me go. And I just, I left and I felt all this adrenaline running through my body and I had to go for a run to calm down. Recently, I was talking to my counselor. Um, I think some of you know her. I like to call her St. Julia Stern. And in conversation with her, I realized I have anxiety. I named it. And she rejoiced, which was such a nice reaction. It was so freeing to name it, and in simply naming it, to be able to relinquish some of its power over me. And in this, I was able to realize why I panic left the dentists, even though the money was sitting in my bank account. I know that anxiety can be so brutal, and it can permeate so many areas of our life. It makes me live in fear of giving up control, fear of being enough, and fear of having enough. And I know that my dentist story is kind of silly and very privileged and pretty trite in the grand scheme of things. But I think it illustrates a fear that spreads into so many other corners in my life. My giving budget, my ability to be spontaneously generous to others, my lifestyle, fill in the blank. It reveals that mammon, the Aramaic word for riches, has stitched itself too tightly to my heart that it has too much control, too much direction over my mind and my body. To be honest, I was of course spending the money in part just because of a generalized anxiety that I experience, but also I know that I was scared of spending the money because that money spent on dentistry means I can't spend that money on myself, on the things I like, on possessions, on the things I often use to give my life meaning instead of turning to God and his way. And I think that God's transforming presence is probably whispering to me in this, gently trying to unstitch this fear and attachment from my heart so that I might find the freedom of his kingdom in its place. In describing the believer's radical generosity to each other, Luke writes that God's grace was powerfully at work among them. This is not just grace for those of us in need, but grace for those of us, us with plenty. Those who in acts are so transformed by God's spirit, by his breath, that they're able to do three things. One, abandon a fear of scarcity. And two, relinquish what's theirs. And three, live freely into another allegiance to another kingdom, to another economy.
all because they've tasted the presence of the kingdom on earth and its economy. And this is an economy of grace, not greed, of the self-emptied person, not the self-made man, of radically offered care, not fearfully guarded capital. This is not just good news for those of us experiencing poverty, but for those of us who live relatively secure lives. God's presence is for all of us, and I pray that it might shape us, maybe, towards being people who live into the the freedom that his spirit offers, freedom from fear and control and striving. And of course, this takes practice. It's not all just feelings or a one-time experience and a one-time response, but it requires participation too. I really like how Richard Rohr puts it when he says that we do not think ourselves into new ways of living, or even you could probably substitute, we do not feel ourselves into new ways of living exclusively. Rather, we live ourselves into new ways of thinking. In living into the economy of the kingdom, the early believers themselves were changed. That's what seems to be going on in Acts 4, a people so transformed by God's presence that they're living for each other, not for themselves. And in doing so, they're participating in their own further transformation. So in the words of Sarah Bessie, which I want to echo, I pray for God to be near us, in ways we never could have expected. And I pray that this will birth a great compassion in us, a love for our suffering world like we've never known. I want to read you a poem. Uh, It's by Walter Brueggemann, and I guess it's also a prayer. It's long, but it's really good, and I've put it up on the screen for you to follow along with. I'll read it slowly. I'll leave space for you to sort of think and respond in your own heads to what's, uh, what's being said. But as I read it, it's called On Generosity, and as I read it, I want you to remember that this is about God's generosity to us. It's about God's presence, his good presence with us and for us. Remember that God is generous with God's presence in our suffering and struggle. And he's generous with his presence in our tight-fisted fear, calling us to participate in his kingdom, so freely given. On generosity. On our own, we conclude that there is not enough to go around. We are going to run short of money, of love, of grades, of publications, of sex, of beer, of members, of years, of life. We should seize the day, seize the goods, seize our neighbor's goods, because there's not enough to go around. And in the midst of our perceived deficit, you come. You come giving bread in the wilderness. You come giving children at the 11th hour. You come giving homes to the exiles. You come giving futures to the shutdown. You come giving Easter joy to the dead. You come fleshed in Jesus. And we watch 
while the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor dance and sing. We watch and we take food we did not grow and life we did not invent and future that is gift and gift and gift and families and neighbors who sustain us when we do not deserve it. It dawns on us, late rather than soon, that you give food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. By your giving, break our cycles of imagined scarcity, override our presumed deficits, quiet our anxieties of lack, transform our perceptual field to see the abundance, mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing. Sink your generosity deep into our lives, that your muchness may expose our false lack, that endlessly receiving we may endlessly give, so that the world may be made Easter new, without greedy lack, but only wonder, without coercive need, but only love, without destructive greed, but only praise, without aggression and evasiveness, all things Easter new, all around us, toward us, and by us, all things Easter new. Finish your creation in wonder, love, and praise. Amen. So, before we meet at the table, uh, where God is very generously present to us, I have a couple invitations for you to consider. First is, what are you afraid you're going to run short of? Is it money, love, grades, sex, beer? And second, how might God long to make himself present to you in this? Finally, I don't think it's up there, but I would just add, if you struggle to see God in your life, is there anywhere that you're longing to see his presence? Anywhere in your life where you long to see himself made manifest to you?